Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony is the founder and managing partner of SkyBridge Capital, as well as probably the most famous White House communications director of all time. SkyBridge manages over $2.5 billion, including $800 million in digital assets. Anthony, welcome to World of DAS. It is great to be on. Could I tell a quick story? I'm in the airport taking the shuttle down to Washington, and a guy taps me on the back and he says, do you know who I am? I said, no, sir, I don't know you. Are. He goes, you know, that's right. And no one knows who I am. And you know why? I said, no, sir. He says, I was the White House communications director for Bill Clinton for eight <laughs> years. And when I tell people, they say, well, what did you do? Well, I was the White House communications director. They say, oh, like Scaramucci? You lasted 11 days. And I got to listen to your name every time I introduce myself to a new person. I thought it was very funny. What are you going to do, right? That's hilarious. That is a great story. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Let's dive into crypto first. We've seen a lot of crypto crashes in the past, but in the past, they didn't necessarily track the stock market crash. What do you think is happening this time in this crypto crash? This is a Wall Street inducted crypto crash. The prior crypto crashes were retail, early stage adoption, uncertainty about adoption, having cycles. This is a Wall Street inducted crash. Let me give you my thesis. Wall Street got very interested in the cryptocurrency idea back in October, November of 2020. What ended up happening was a group of Wall Streeters said, okay, I get this. I understand how this could potentially be long-term a hedge against inflation. Let me start to buy some of this. And then when the ETF was disallowed and you only got the futures ETF, it peaked November of 2021, 11 short months ago. And then as the Fed reversed course on rates, all the Wall Streeters, not me, because I would consider myself a traditional finance guy that moved into DeFi, but the typical Wall Street crowd pulled out of the crypto markets abruptly and caused a cascade of activity that triggered the exposure of the fraud at places like Three Arrows. You and I are old enough to remember Bernie Madoff. We're also old enough to remember John Merriweather. It's almost like John Merriweather and Bernie Madoff got together and had a baby and they named the baby Three Arrows. So you had fraud plus a Ponzi scheme going on at the same time. That caused a further collapse. So this time is Fed-induced Wall Street traders that pulled out. Was there a margin thing where people were buying on debt and had to cover their debt and stuff? Yeah, margin calls, some fraud, these lenders like BlockFly over their skis in terms of their capitalization. But what do you and I both know? There are no new mistakes. We have seen these movies before. Unfortunately, this is my ninth bear market. I can take you back to the 87 crash, explain what happened, the 1994 David Askin crisis. I can take you to the 98 long-term capital management debacle, the 2000 dot-com bust. All of these things happen more or less with the same tail, over leverage, greed, missed analytical forecasting. People think the thing is going to grow to the sky, but it doesn't. It's actually peaking right when they think it's going to grow forever. It collapses. We're there again now, but here's the good news about where we are. I do think the Fed is now breaking the economy. 
you'll have a decent scaled recession. If you'd asked me three months ago, I would have said a shallow recession. I don't believe that now. It'll be more of a normal course recession. It'll pull back the inflation numbers. It'll collapse the used car prices. It'll collapse the prices in various commodities. That's already happening. And there'll be a healing of the economy probably in the first or second quarter of next year. You have to gut it out. If you're a smart long-term investor, you gut it out. We're getting hotter than expected inflation numbers right now. But I think by the end of the year into the first quarter, that stuff will cool off. Going back to crypto, it's estimated that only about 5% of Bitcoin are held by institutional investors. The vast majority are held by individuals, some of which are obviously very wealthy individuals. Why aren't there more institutional investors in things like Bitcoin and then, of course, all the other crypto assets? I think it's regulatory clarity. There's the uncertainty about regulation. Tell me what is a commodity and tell me what is a security. And most of the institutions don't know the answer to that. And we're waiting for either the SEC, the CFTC, or our members of Congress to opine about what that is. If you're asking me to guess, it looks like Ethereum and Bitcoin will fall into the commodities bucket. That seems to be the indication from these regulators. If that's the case, I think that's very good for Ethereum and Bitcoin. Why is that good? Because they would fall into the CFTC, a less burdensome regulatory regime. Than the SEC or something. Yes. So the commodities futures trading, commodities are typically raw materials and they're typically bought by producers of finished goods, a result of which the CFTC takes a position Those are professionals. And so there's a little bit lighter touch regulation. Is it ultimately a fight like the CFTC wants to oversee it, the SEC wants to oversee it, and then they fight? Yeah. Who adjudicates that battle? Congress. Oh, so Congress has to basically say, you win it or you win it. Or the agencies agree to a compromise. And so I think it's some combination of those two things are happening right now. The agencies are saying, we're going to cede Ethereum and Bitcoin to the CFTC. Everything else is going to go to the SEC. But now the Congress, there's something called the Stabenow bill, which I don't know if it gets passed in this lame duck session of the Congress or not. Some people in Washington think it will be. I'm always skeptical of what happens in Washington because they always delay things. But If it does get passed, then that would be the definitive decree. Those two cryptocurrencies go into the commodities bucket. The rest go into the tokenized securities bucket. The SEC has just more burdensome regulation, more filing requirements, and more disclosure or, to make it simple, safety seals. They need all of these warning labels. This goes to zero if you buy it, or this, that, and the other. You're familiar with this as I am. Just look at any risk factors in a prospectus for any IPO that's ever been done. It's all in there, all suggesting that anything that you buy could go to zero. Do you have a point of view of whether we should create a central back digital currency, a CBDC at all? I do. My view is based on my political philosophy as a civil libertarian. I don't like it. I think it would be onersome from a privacy perspective. They've already got tremendous amounts of information on you. They can get tremendous amounts of information on you. But if you put all of your money in a smart wallet on your phone, they will be able to track every single thing that you do at any time. Moreover, one of the concerns about what's going on in China right now is they move to a digital currency, a digital yuan. 
they could be watching you with artificial intelligence and cameras, and then they could reward behavior by adding currency to your wallet, or they could be punitive to you and take currency out of your wallet. I don't like the government having that much control over the money. I would prefer the private sector banking system to have that control. You know people like Jeremy Allaire at Circle. You've heard of these stable coins that are out there. Jeremy has probably 45 or $50 billion worth of USDC, the US dollar digital currency. It's marked at a dollar. You can trade back and forth into it. And I would like to see something from the private sector be that stable coin for the future of commerce. And just regulate it. Like You have to make sure that you have 90% in the bank or whatever it is. Yeah. You have to make sure it's well-capitalized, well-reserved. Just like a money market would be. Just like a money market would be. Yes. On the voting side, Ethereum completed their merge to be a proof of stake. Algorand, which I know is a currency that you're very interested in, is a proof of stake. Bitcoin's still proof of work. There's folks like Chia, which are proof of space. Do you think there's going to be a dominant paradigm or do you think there's always going to be many, many different types of voting mechanisms? I want to take you back to Betamax. You remember VHS and Betamax? Of course. Or you remember the fight between Blu-ray and UHD, right? One technology takes over from the other, or the MS-DOS, Microsoft's digital operating system, versus the operating system of Apple. The space is big enough where there could be a lot of different concepts to validate transactions, but I ultimately believe proof of stake is going to be the VHS or the Blu-ray will be the standardized protocol. Now, where will proof of work live? Well, Bitcoin is this, I don't want to say it's an antique technology, but I would say it's a collectible. I would say that Bitcoin being the first and still the biggest, I think Bitcoin ends up as a store of value. Now, there's guys like Jack Mahler's, they believe that they can create this layer two, this lightning network off chain, batch it back onto the chain. It creates a lot faster transaction speeds, lower costs, less gas fees, if you will. That may work. I'm not saying that it won't work. You're a technologist. Anything that we're working on in technology, we're turning science fiction into science fact. We've been doing that for the last hundred years. So that could work. But I do think that if you look at the economy, you look at the environment, and you look at the scalability quotients, these currencies like an Algorand, a Solana, even Ethereum now that it's merged successfully, I think those are going to be the standard protocols going forward. Part of the nice thing about a proof of stake is you're essentially earning interest on your coin often. So Solana or something is going to earn interest, which is kind of like a DeFi. There's the benefit where the number of coins that you have grows over time as long as you hold them. Yeah. Those incentive mechanisms are growing the ecosystem. They're growing the community. The results of which is that community grows, there'll be more developers in that community. There's like a virtuous circle or virtuous feedback loop, more applications, more use cases, which leads to an ascendancy of those cryptocurrencies. I'd love to get your thoughts about DeFi. I'd love to be able to lend out my Bitcoin. But one of the worries is, of course, when you lend it out, the institution that's brokering that transaction might get hacked or might go out of business. You thought you're getting 4%, but really you got completely wiped out. Right. This is the banks before the FDIC. This is the banking system circa 1920. 
where you didn't have these standardized capital ratios, you didn't have these tier one, tier two capital, there was no Basel one or two regulatory rubric globally. And by the way, even when you have those things, you're still going to need governmental intervention. Look at what happened in 2008. Many of those banks would have gone bankrupt and wiped out their savers had the government not kicked in capital when they needed it in 2008. I'm wary of these financing companies right at this moment. But I do think that they will get better capitalized over time. And I do think that there'll be more regulation around them and there'll be more guidelines that they have to adhere to. And then I think it'll be okay to put your Bitcoin on deposit somewhere and to earn yield off of it. That will eventually be very successful, but it hasn't been right now because of all the uncertainty around it and the fact that these guys did classic banking mistakes that were made in the 1920s in terms of, okay, I'm going to offer Oren way more yield in order to attract depositors. And then I'm going to see if I can lend that out at an even higher yield. But oh, by the way, my money market multiplier, if you will, I'm too undercapitalized. So if there's a run on my bank, I'm going to get myself wiped out. Or the people that are lending it to weren't paying it back. Yeah, or the people they're lending it to, they fail. They can't meet the payments. And that also speaks to the collateralization and the way they're securitizing these things. So this is a nascent industry. We don't lend out our Bitcoin. We're completely unlevered in our cryptocurrency portfolios, which I think has helped us. Now, we have the best performing long-only cryptocurrency fund this year. It's down 60. So I'm not patting myself on the back, but other stuff's down 80. Why? It's levered or they've overly concentrated, or they're indexed. I'll give you an example. If you bought the index on January 1st of 2022, you got damaged because Luna, the Terra Luna project, was the seventh largest capitalized project, according to CoinGecko. So if you just systematically bought the top 10 and you weighted them, your number seven, Terra Luna, went to zero. So you can't do that either. So we don't index. We buy things that we believe in, that we're selecting, that we think are great long-term protocols. We obviously thought that that stable coin was inherently unstable because they were backing it with Bitcoin, which is a 100 vol asset. You can't back something and call it stable with an unstable asset. We passed on that, thankfully. But this also speaks to the nascent nature of this business. We're in the Wild West. We're in covered wagons. We're heading west in search of silver and gold and other great assets. There'll be ghost chains. The same way we set up shop in 1841 alongside of a river in Idaho, and we thought there'd be silver and gold in that river. We had a store and we had a hotel and a bar but there was no gold. And so people left. And that little enclave, if you will, became a ghost town. Of the 20,000 chains that are out there, many of those chains will not pick up the volume. They won't pick up the community, the applications, the use cases. And they'll be just like those towns where there was no silver. That's happening and it will continue to happen. And when you think like a Coinbase, at one point, they wanted to be able to participate in DeFi. They wanted to allow people to lend out their Bitcoin. The regulators basically just told them they couldn't do it right now. Coinbase does it, then it becomes much more mainstream. When do you think something like that will do it? I mean, Brian, I think he's one of the more genius visionaries of the crypto space. He wanted to create this securitization mechanism, effectively have Coinbase be like a bank for cryptocurrency. And the regulators basically said, well, we're not ready for that yet. 
we don't have a regulatory commission, whether it's CFTC or the SEC or the Banking Commission, that's been empowered by the Congress to regulate you. So you would be doing that without regulation. We're here to protect the consumer. We're not saying you're going to do something malevolent or with ill intention, but we need to have guardrails around what you're doing to protect the consumer. And since we don't have those in place right now, we don't want you to do that. You still could have done it. We still live in a fairly laissez-faire society, but then he would have opened himself up to lots of governmental scrutiny. Once you're a public company, it's very hard to do those things. You get these weird shareholder lawsuits and all this other stuff. Exactly. And he made the decision, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to put my board through that. So he's now waiting, like the rest of us are, for regulatory clarity in the United States. But this lack of regulatory clarity is hurting the United States. My good friend Sam Bankman-Fried is based in the Bahamas. I think he would love to be based here in the United States, but there's more regulatory clarity in the Bahamas related to cryptocurrencies and related to cryptocurrency trading than there is in the US. He doesn't want to trip up here in the US, but I would imagine once we get that regulatory clarity, look for him to move because he's a US citizen. He's a taxpayer here. Speaking of him, you recently sold 30% of SkyBridge to the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, which he runs. How did that come about? How did you determine this is the right time to do that? I met Sam through a mutual friend. Sam was explaining to me what he was doing. He had recently named the arena in Miami, which used to be the American Airlines arena, the FTX arena. He then put his brand on the umpires in Major League Baseball. So he was making a foray to raise his marketing profile in the US as a global cryptocurrency exchange. Then I suggested to Sam that he comes to our SALT conferences. We do them all around the world now. But in addition to that, I said to Sam, I'm an early stage investor in something called Ledger X, which was the first commodities derivatives cryptocurrency exchange to get a license from the CFTC. Remember, futures and derivatives are treated as commodities. You have to have a certain threshold and be able to buy them. So the CFTC gave Ledger X a license. And I said to Sam, I want you to meet the leadership team there. I'm an early investor. They're former Goldman Sachs colleagues of mine. Now, Sam sat down with them and had dinner. And he said, okay, this is an amazing business. I'd like to own this business and incorporate it into FDX. So he made that acquisition last year. As a result of my introduction, there was a lot of goodwill there. He then came to our conference at SALT. And then I said, Sam, why don't we do a conference for you in the Bahamas? We called that Crypto Bahamas. We did it at the Bar Mar Hotel that would showcase the island's prestige as a well-regulated government as it relates to cryptocurrencies and also showcasing Sam's team down there. That was a resounding success. We had 2,500 people there. I went on a Disney cruise, Oren. Do you love this story? I'm on the Disney (laughs) cruise with my kids. We have a port stop in the Bahamas that I'm like, oh my God, my wife wants to go to the water park with these young maniacs. I have older children from my first marriage, but we have two sons, five and eight. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get stuck at this water park. I said, who can I call to get me out of this? I'm Sam Bankman-Fried. So I called Sam. I said, Sam, it's just you. You're the only person between me and eight hours at the water park. You got to come over to the Barmore Hotel and have lunch with me. You would be an acceptable alibi to my wife. In addition to her liking you, she knows how important our business relationship is. No problem, Anthony rolled over there in his Toyota Corolla. We had a two-hour lunch, and then we were talking at lunch. I said, well, how can we get closer? I think I suggested it, frankly. I said, would you want to buy a small piece of our business, maybe 10 or 15% of our business? 
So I like to buy more of it. If I'm going to do something, I want to be bigger as opposed to lesser. We gave him the opportunity to buy 30% of the business. It was basically about $150 million valuation. We purchased cryptocurrencies, put them on our balance sheet as a show of directionally where we all are. So I didn't sell one share. We just issued shares to him. He has the right to buy the remaining shares at a $250 million valuation in a couple of years. And I've been working very closely with him. We're helping him raise money for his round right now. He's out there raising a billion dollars, about a half of which has been committed so far at the current valuation, the last valuation that he had. So he has this extraordinarily profitable, fast-growing company. So even though the whole marketplace has collapsed, he is minting money because he's on both sides of the trade as a risk operator. He's like a Citadel or something. Exactly. Citadel for crypto is probably a good example of what he is, maybe even more powerful than that because the spreads are so much wider in cryptocurrency than the things that Citadel's currently trading. Certainly expect Citadel and others to join Sam in the cryptocurrency markets, but he's got a great business. He's a great human being. He spends a lot of his money on effective, practical altruism, if you will. He's a genius and he's a lot of fun to work with. He's a contemporary of my 30-year-old son. So for me, it's a good cross-generational relationship. And that's how it came about. But I think there's a lesson here for your podcast listeners. Brainstorm and be open to big ideas. You're talking to somebody that was in the typewriter business. What do I mean by that? I had a fund of funds. When you and I first met, I think I came to one of your first conferences. Fund of funds is a nice business, but it's a typewriter business in terms of where the world is going. It would be like me telling you I'm in the horse and buggy business. So I have pivoted from owning a fund of funds into the digital asset space. We're now over one third of our assets are digital. And you also have a conference business, which is always a great business. Yeah, I do. I have a robust conference business. It's a global business. I still have the fund of funds, but we've migrated into these other assets. And obviously we're faced with a bear market right now. But if you have a long-term belief in cryptocurrency, It is a de-layering mechanism for the economy. If you and I can walk into that restaurant and pay the waiter from a smart wallet, and it's a transaction between us and them, and we've now bypassed Visa, MasterCard, and American Express, and we saved the 3.5% load of doing business through them, that has a wonderful economically efficient effect on the economy. And so I predict we'll have more peer-to-peer transactions, taking out middlemen and women, throughout our economic society, that will lead to disinflationary pressure, more growth, and more economic efficiency. Let's talk a little bit about politics as well. We've known each other for about 10 years. And one of the things that I've noticed is that your personality differs in person than from public perception. I think that's probably true of most people. How do you think it's most different from in person to the public perception? When you go into politics, you get too dimensionalized by your adversaries. So I've had everything told to me. I'm Tony Soprano on the Potomac when I was a communications director. I was a Jersey Shore cast member in Washington. I mean, some of that's Italian attack, but I think people want to superficialize you. They want to make you stupider than you actually are. They want to dehumanize you and sometimes, frankly, demonize you. I tease people. I said, if I was bald-headed and I had thick glasses and you read my resume, Tufts, Harvard Law School, Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2001 in the financial services category here in New York, and you read my resume and all the books that I've actually read, you'd be like, okay, this guy's actually a nerd. But when you see me and you see me on TV, you see me as a Long Island Guido. And that's fine. I'm a big boy. I can take it. 
you can't go into politics without expecting to be hammered. It would be like me joining the Tampa Bay Buccaneers tomorrow and trying to catch a pass from Tom Brady. If I got clocked over the secondary and I've now got a concussion, I can't blame Tom Brady or the free safety. That's the game you're playing. That's the game I'm playing. So if you go into politics and someone wants to call me Tony Soprano or somebody wants to say that I'm a Jersey Shore cast member, I believe in free speech. I think it's funny and I roll with the punches. But it does have a deleterious effect on your public persona and your public image. I understand that. What I believe is over time, your data points will eventually match reality. So if there's an arbitrage spread right now between who I actually am and what people think of me, more podcasts like the one you've invited me on and more interaction with people, more public speaking, those data points start to converge and people start to see you for who you really are, not who the media or your adversaries try to depict you. But if you read my Wikipedia page, it's slanderous. It's definitely written by a Democratic operative, primarily during my Trump time. And they do that to each other. And by the way, read any politician's Wikipedia page. It's an unmitigated disaster for the person because you've got teams of people that are sitting there hitting your Wikipedia page with nonsense. By the way, it's not always the Democrats hurting the Republicans or Republicans hurting the Democrats. Often it's like the inter-party stuff. No, I'm indicting both sides. But I'm saying often, if you're a Republican, the people really go after your other Republicans because if you get down, they get your job. And if you're a Democrat, the people really go after you, the other Democrats, because if you go down, they get your job. If you're the White House communications director, if you leave, it's not like they're going to replace you with a Democrat. Yes. But here's what happens. I gave a press conference on the 21st of July, 2017. According to CNN, it was seen by 40 million people. It was a Friday afternoon. When I walked upstairs from the Brady Press Room, from Lower Press up to the Oval Office, my phone was ringing. I reached into my pocket to answer the phone. It was a Republican operative, a well-known guy, by the way, who made me promise never to give up his name, so I won't now, but you'd recognize his name. And he said to me, what the hell are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He goes, that was a terrible press conference. I said, really? I, I thought it went pretty well. He says, no, you can't talk like that from the White House. You can't tell the truth to the American people from the White House. You can't just do that. We're allergic to the truth here in Washington. I've got staffers in the House and staffers in the Senate calling me saying, what do you got on this guy? Let's get him out of here. And lo and behold, 10 short days later, I was blown from the White House into Pennsylvania Avenue. So that's life in politics in America today. America right now, for whatever reason, we're electing political leaders that really don't want to tell the American people the truth. We're electing political leaders that are very tribal. They're more focused on preserving their political capital and their political power than they are in actually serving the American people. That fever will break. That's one of the great things about our country. You can go through the 246-year history of the country. We've had moments like this before in our past, and that fever will break. There'll be a smarter, more entrepreneurial, policy-leaning group of people that will come to power. I know people are fatalistic and they're cynical about our political process, but I'm telling you, like the economy, we go through economic cycles of self-serving jackasses to public servants. We do go through that wave, and I believe that this next generation of political public servants are going to be better than the baby boomer generation, which has failed the country abysmally. They racked up $27 trillion of debt. They've mishandled the Federal Reserve. They've overpromised the American people and are consistently under-delivering. So I do think that will change. Your name, Scaramucci, is now known also as a unit of time. 
which I think is kind of cool. It's kind of like the Volta or the Watt, like as a unit of energy. What's it like to be synonymous with the unit of time? I lean into it. I sort of love it. Just as long as people tell me that it's 11 days, when they tell me it's 10, it hurts my feelings because- <laughs> They're taking off 10%. Yeah, you're taking off 9.1% of my federal career. I mean, that's a big number. Let's just go over it. I got hired on the 21st of July, got my ass fired on the 31st. Count the days. If you worked a full day on the 21st and you worked a full day on the 31st, is 11 days. Even President Trump, in sparring with me on Twitter, acknowledged that it was 11 days. I'm sure somebody wrote that for him, but yeah, it's all good, man. It's all good. To me, one of the things that I really like about you is you have the ability to change your mind. That does seem today really hard to do for most people in politics. Why is that so tough? It's the flip-flopping. Sandals are thrown at each other, and people think that if you change your mind that you're unprincipled or you're a hypocrite. But I think John Maynard Keynes said it best, when the facts change, the smartest people change their opinion. I like the Republican Party generally. I don't like the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. I like the Democratic Party generally. I don't like the radical left side of the Democratic Party. I think they're killing people. I mean, look what they did to Andrew Cuomo here in New York State, as an example. I want to get away from the radicalism and I want to get away from left and right and focus on right or wrong. So I have no problem speaking my mind. It's probably cost me some business. It's probably tainted my public visage, if you will, as a result of having opinions. But I love the country. And I think it's important for people that are business leaders or entrepreneurs to speak out about what's going on, even if it has some business consequence. You know, I have friends of mine saying, keep a low profile, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you keep a low profile, nothing's going to change ever. You're an agent for change, which is why I have such enormous professional respect for you. But I want to be an agent for change. I want to be an agent for kindness, an agent for goodness. I don't like the bullying going on in the political system right now. On the events, you founded the SALT Conference, probably the best known investor conference. What are some non-obvious keys to having a successful event? If you're just giving advice to an event planner. It's probably obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Have good food. Really? You think that's important? I do. I think it's important. You know, Jews and Italians have good food. I mean, who's kidding who? Okay. Have good food. And by the way, you have great food at your events. If you chintz out on things like that, it's noticeable. You got to spend the money on that. And by the way, if you're having entertainment, meaning cocktail, you got to have top shelf booze or top shelf wine. It sends a message to people. I have a broken window theory of the conference business. You got to fix all the petite crimes in the society because that'll send a message to everybody culturally that we're not taking any BS. But I have that same broken windows theory about conferencing. We got to make sure that there's good lighting. You got to make sure the seats are well spaced and there's ample opportunity for networking, at least a decent swag bag. It doesn't have to be an Oscar swag bag, but it has to be a decent swag bag. But I think the most important thing I would tell somebody that's running an event is think about three things always when you're running an event. Are the people going to learn something from the event? Usually, busy people want to learn something when they go to an event. Number two, are they going to meet people, he or she, that are going to help their businesses because they want to network an event? And the last thing, and this is something you understand intuitively, but some people don't, are they going to have fun at the event? If I'm going to meet people, learn something, and have a good time, those are the three secret ingredients of a great event. I bring the chain smokers to New York for Salt New York because they're wildly popular. 
I don't know anybody that's been to a chain smoker concert or private event that hasn't had a blast. Now, most conference presentations and the panels are just incredibly boring. What's the secret to getting a good presentation? The moderator is important because a good moderator, I don't want to say tricks the person, but the good moderator can ask intimate questions where all of a sudden the person goes off script and starts talking to you authentically. So the worst presentation is I show up, I have a canned list of talking points, and I'm reading you robotically the talking points. Which you've said at every other conference. Right. And so now there's no breaking news, there's no substance, but you're asking me about my White House career, getting my ass fired, and I'm opening up to you and exposing my humanity. I'm exposing my despair the day that I was fired and the confusion and then the avalanche of horseshit that I took from the cable news networks and the late night comedians. And then how do you build yourself back up from that? We're now having this honest conversation. I want presenters and moderators that are willing to expose the vulnerability of being human. Once you've exposed your vulnerability to somebody, they will intuitively trust you more. Because they're like, okay, that guy's telling me the truth. He's giving me an unvarnished opinion of something. So what happened when you learned that the terrorists were putting ceramic bombs in the laptops? Well, I was scared shit when that was happening. And I thought that we were going to have to close down TSA for purposes of laptops and people were going to have to x-ray them and ship them under the plane. I got scared. That sort of thing. It's like with the liquid, we have to have a certain amount of liquid. You can't have a certain amount of liquid because they figured out a way to make a bomb out of a Pepsi can. So to me, telling somebody that you were scared shit about something like that is honest. Instead of some program, blah, blah, blah. I mean, who the hell wants to hear that? I know that whenever some PR flack works with me, the first thing they tell me before I go on a panel or make a presentation or something like that, there's like, sound intelligent but don't be interesting. Interesting is what kills you. Interesting is what gets the Twitter war and all this other stuff. So just go out there, sound intelligent, but hopefully no one actually remembers anything you say. Usually is the advice that they give. How do you combat that advice? It depends on what you want your profile to be. I want to be more interesting than that. And I want to take the heat from being more interesting than that. So if I say something controversial, Somebody said to me, well, you're not woke enough. And I was like, probably in a coma. I mean, I'm probably so asleep that I'm probably in a coma. I don't believe in the whole woke nonsense. I just don't believe in it. Sorry. I want to treat everybody fairly. I want to treat everybody equally, but I don't want to get into this gamesmanship of controlling people's language. It's like Orwellian. I don't care what color you are, what your sexual preference is. I will treat you the exact same. I don't like the monikers that we're putting on this sort of stuff. People get really mad at me when I say that. Okay, no problem. But that's how I feel. And you can be mad at me for me saying it. And it could be quote unquote controversial. I interviewed a woman who was sexually harassed at Goldman Sachs. She wrote a book called The Bully Market. She's now been shunned by Goldman. That was the wrong thing to do. The right thing to have done is read her book and invite her in to talk about it. And let's fix Goldman Sachs as opposed to pretending that it's not happening. But their lawyers get involved and they can't admit to certain things. Oh my God, there could be a class action lawsuit against us vis-a-vis these women that have not been treated fairly inside the firm. And by the way, that's not Goldman, that's every corporation in America. So my point is I'd rather talk about it and see if we can heal it or make it better than pretend that it doesn't exist or there are corporate people, political people, 
bury it in the sand. Let's pretend it doesn't exist. And you're stupid for bringing it up. I'd rather bring it up. And it's costly, but it leads to change. There are people in the gay community today. I was for gay marriage in 2008. I had dinner with Andrew Cuomo last night, the former governor. Andrew Cuomo had balls. It was 30% approval rating for gay marriage in 2008. We got that passed. I'm a Republican that works with Republican state senators to help get it passed. It now has 70% approval in New York State, the gay marriage provision. And why should my sexual orientation make me unequal? If I want to get married to somebody of the same sex, I should have that right. That's a libertarian concept to me. That's actually quite conservative because it's about individual liberty. We just have this weird society right now. But my point is, is that you don't make those changes unless you have balls or guts or whatever you want to call it. And it's the same thing with everything else. If you don't call it out for what it is, it's not going to get better. I have a gay chief of staff and he tells me at age 28, he's happy as a clam, openly gay, has a boyfriend. 35 years ago, that was not happening. That stuff was closeted up. There were social stigmas. They were outside the social norm. Let's make what is normal for a society more available to people and more normal. And if you don't talk about it, it doesn't happen. You're kind of known for your Long Island wisdom. Is there any interesting Long Island wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? It's funny you say Long Island wisdom because it makes me think of Billy Joel and all of his great songs. When I'm at home with my blue-collar friends, remember I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood and I've done very well, thank God. But I would say keeping things real is the most substantial thing you can do for everybody in your life, your family members, your employees, your colleagues. I went to Mitt Romney's event over the weekend. Senator Joe Manchin was there with Paul Ryan. I brought General Kelly with me. General John Kelly fired me from the White House. We were sore at each other, but he's an American patriot. He's actually a terrific guy. So we broke bread and made peace. And now we do speaking engagements together around the country. And we brought each other to that event. And we spoke. When I was done with him, and I was walking off the stage. Mitt Romney turned to me and said, you know, you're incredibly authentic. Don't lose that. That's Long Island wisdom. Just be yourself and get comfortable in your own skin. You don't have to be anybody else. There's something fun and unique to being yourself. Even if it causes some volatility, it's better to cause some volatility and break some China than just be a dull, boring, inside the mainstream person. That's my advice. I love that. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I would say market sentiment and short-termism in the markets is to me quite conventional. And I think it's very negative. Everybody is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. And when they have short-term losses, they overreact to the situation. And so when things are going poorly for whatever reason, people hit the eject button too quickly. I think that's very conventional. And I think people have to recognize as an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, or in a business, you have to gut it out. You have to see things to the other side. 14 short years ago, there were two ex-Goldman people in my office and they told me to shut down Skybridge. And I said, well, excuse me, why should I shut down Skybridge? Well, you have 300 million under management. You have heavy redemptions because you're not doing well. It's a global financial crisis. You're going to go to 200 million and you should shut down Skybridge and go work for somebody. I said, well, okay, I appreciate the advice. I didn't shut down Skybridge. I bought Citibank's fund of funds. I merged it into Skybridge and I started the SALT conference. 
And if I shut down Skybridge, I wouldn't have done those things. We're having a difficult time right now. If I shut down Skybridge, I wouldn't be teamed up with Sam Bankman-Fried and what arguably could end up as the Amazon of cryptocurrency brokerage. It could be the supermarket for cryptocurrencies over the next 20 years. My point is you have to stay in the game. And I think that's pretty unconventional. Most people cut and run. All right, this is great. Thank you, Anthony Scaramucci, for joining us on World of DAS. I know you tweet at, at Scaramucci, and I encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. You're the best, man. Hopefully, I'll see you in person, face-to-face soon. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.